Okay, I have a visual history of the King James Bible, everything you ever wanted to know about the King James Bible, and Communion with God by John Owen, a book you should read. And men who want to do the men's leadership, we just might be reading that next year, but don't buy it yet if you don't have it. I mean, you should buy it eventually, but not certain on that yet. So who can tell me what we learned about last week? Who was that? Ricky. Which one do you want, Ricky? First choice. John Owen. Okay, good. You can read that between now. Come get it. You can read it between now and next week. And let me know what you think, okay? You got time to do that, right? Okay. Who can tell me one thing they learned about what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Not just that they come to your door, but their theology, their bad theology. Judge Rutherford. Yeah, that was his name. That's enough right there. Okay. You get to learn a dramatic story of the world's best-known translation. And it's got 85 illustrations. There you go. See, it pays to remember, take notes, and you get book giveaways the next week. So if you, if you win a book giveaway in this class, don't raise your hand next week, even if you know the answer. We'll spread the gifts around, okay? But it's not like Oprah where everybody gets a gift. And the theology is not like Oprah either. So, okay. Although some of this bad theology will, will come pretty close. The theology here is not like that. Let's open in prayer. Lord, thank you that we've gathered here today to worship later in our service, but to learn this morning about bad theology and how to answer it with the truth of Scripture. There's so much bad theology out there. It seems like, Lord, everywhere we turn, people make up their own lies, deception, error. And they believe it and they trust in it. So help us to be loving enough to correct them and to be bold enough to do so. And to learn a little bit about some of these cults out there so we can speak responsibly and knowledgeably about them. Help us to remember what we learned this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. So seven-day Adventism. I didn't look up the numbers, but it's very popular, maybe more than Jehovah's Witnesses. I'll show you a map of the San Antonio area. There's certainly more meeting places than Jehovah's Witnesses. I think because Seventh-day Adventism is more commonly accepted. It's generally not even seen as a cult by a lot of people. It was originally, then there was this time where, you know, evangelicals were more open, they were more willing to open the doors and let people kind of come under the big tent And now folks are starting to realize again what they believe, because it's based on their belief. It's not that they just have some weird practices, although they do. It's not that they, you know, worship on a different day, although that's a bit legalistic, and I'll talk about that. But it's the doctrines they have on salvation, the doctrines they have on the Bible plus the prophecies. And so we'll be looking at those today. This is a class teaching this summer, both myself and Pastor Frank, on bad theology. So we're going to talk a lot about what these cults believe and then answer them with Scripture. But the majority of the time we'll be focusing on what they believe so we can have the right understanding. And I think sometimes if you don't even know the verse to answer it, you understand it's wrong. You understand good theology enough to know that bad theology is wrong. And that's a good place to be in. If you work for a bank, you're supposed to know what real money looks like. It's easier to know the real thing so well that you can spot anything different. Because the thing with counterfeiters, they're always changing technology, always changing their strategies, and you can't really keep up. It's like so many things in this world. The sin is out there, and it's always morphing and changing into some new form as far as the way it looks. And better to know the truth and know it really well 
So when the bad comes along, you know, whatever that is, it's not the truth. Then as you interact with people who believe these things, it's good to know some things about it. But I wouldn't suggest you become a PhD in Mormonism or, you know, an expert who knows every single thing and even willing to go to the worship services of some of these cults. I would caution you there. Seventh-day Adventists are all over. I think when we looked at Jehovah's Witnesses, there was a lot less last week in San Antonio. Maybe four, three or four kingdom halls. And Seventh-day Adventists are just really all over the place in the San Antonio area. And if you go, I remember when we were in California, they have these huge hospitals out there, the Adventist healthcare system. And they're, they're I think, one of the nation's largest religious health care providers. And so this is a large group cult, millions of people. Here's the closest one to this building. It's probably at 1604 and, and Bandera Road, 16, Scenic Hills, Seventh-day Adventist Church. And you can see there, if you're just driving by, you don't know anything about maybe Christianity. Like so many people we know haven't studied theology well or the Bible. Hey, there's a church right around the corner. You know, it starts at 1030. Saturday service even. This might be a happening place, you know. Your first thought might be, wow, they're so busy on Sunday, they have to open up Saturday services. And then English-Spanish. I'm not sure why Seventh-day Adventism is so appealing uh, to the Hispanic world, but it seems like that is a large percentage of Seventh-day Adventists today. And even if you look online and you see the people who are debating, you know, Seventh-day Adventism, they're proponents of it. It's often Hispanic. Uh, Philippines is also has grown a lot, but South America, Central America, and in the U.S. Here's just the outside of the building there. Yeah, it just looks like any old church building. Look, they even got some soft chairs. I think we saw that last week with the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? A lot of food, yeah? Do they have food all the time? Hispanic food? Spicy food? It's appealing, Yeah. So you, you might walk in the door at a Seventh-day Adventist and say, what's the big deal? I mean, it looks very similar, right? There's not statues on the wall. There's scarier things in a Roman Catholic church than, than some of these cults that we're looking at here. Let's talk about the history of it, because it's not on first appearances. You don't, you don't judge a book by its cover. You don't even judge what they just say when you first meet somebody. But you need to go back and look at where did this group come from? And it is rather new in the history of, of maybe Christianity. I don't think it's a Christianity, but it is from Christianity that they get some of their views. So William Miller was claimed to be a Christian. 1782, he was born. And going into the 1800s, he, had, he was a farmer, but he said, you know, I really liked my own personal study of Daniel and Revelation. And so he said, you know what? Based on my study, I think Christ is going to return 2,300 years after Ezra's return to Jerusalem in 457. And so he said, hey, that's right around the corner. 1843, that's when Christ is coming back. So sell all your possessions and then wait. Well, the, the thing didn't happen. 1843 came, it went by, Christ did not return. So he says, okay, really what I meant was 1844. That's when Jesus is coming back. 1844 came, it went, and now he's struggling because here's this guy trying to start, just like the Jehovah's Witness guy who started Jehovah's Witnesses, Russell. Here's Miller wanting to start this little group, you know, just a Bible study in the home, no big deal. 
around his beliefs that Christ is about to return. Even though the Bible says no one knows the time, don't predict the date is, is the teaching in the scriptures. He said he would know it. And it was in 1844. That didn't happen. Okay, you can't be wrong twice and still be considered a prophet. You really can't even be wrong once and still be considered a prophet. But that is neither here nor there for the cult. So he says, well, Christ did come back. I know how I can fix this. Christ came back, but he really just came back and entered the heavenly sanctuary. It was invisible. So you couldn't see it. That was what it meant. He said that Christ was coming back in 1844. Of course, by then, people have had enough. People start to leave the movement. It's not called Seventh-day Adventists by this point. They're just Millerites. These are people who follow Miller and predicting or following his prediction of when Christ would return. And so sometimes you might be reading some church history and come across the Millerites. The Millerites are people who followed William Miller, who didn't take into account anything in church history or even exegetical study because he didn't have any training to do that. He simply opened his Bible and came up with this. Here's Phil Johnson. I know it's a little bit smaller, but I'll read it to you. So Phil Johnson is later teaching. He's at Grace Community Church, and he's reflecting and teaching on the Millerites. He says, by the early 1840s, the Millerite movement had expanded into a huge international phenomenon. In one five-month span in 1843, 600,000 copies of his literature were distributed in New York alone. New York was a big spot. That's where the Jehovah's Witnesses were really publishing all their literature and getting it out. People sold their homes. They gave away their possessions. They gave up their livelihoods in order to demonstrate their faith in William Miller's prediction. They were willing to follow him to the point of selling everything. Of course, Christ did not return, not in Miller's lifetime, not even that century. Miller tried adjusting his dates a time or two, but he himself gave up hope of finding a way to adjust his calculations to keep the expectation alive. He died baffled and disillusioned. He never joined the seven-day Adventists himself, although they came as an offshoot of his movement. To this day, Adventists refer to Miller's failed prediction of the second coming as the great disappointment. So they say it's the great disappointment, and yet they also believe something happened in heaven that day. That would seem a pretty shaky foundation on which to found a new religious movement, a false prophecy that culminated in disappointment and worldwide embarrassment. So Miller goes away, he disappears, but with his predictions and his belief system, some of his people that were studying under him go on to start a new movement called the Seventh-day Adventists. The Seventh-day Adventists. And the person who does the most in pushing this forward and helping it get organized on its belief is Ellen G. White. Ellen G. White, she also has some other last names, depending on who she's married to at the time. But Ellen G. White, born in Maine in 1827. She grew up a Methodist. Hit her head at nine years old. Dropped out of school around third grade. And her family, when she was young, about 12 years old, they began following William Miller and his beliefs that Christ was about to return in 1843, 1844. And so she grows up under this teaching. It's not even a question for her. And sooner or later, she is going to start to prophesy as well. He predicted. He, I don't think Miller necessarily claimed to be a prophet. She's going to claim to be a prophetess based on what she says So she says she started having visions around December 1844. And she said, oh, an invisible return of Christ to his heavenly temple 
is coming. So Millerite's date comes and goes, and she says, well, actually, what's happened is an invisible return of Christ. And he went into his heavenly temple. So you can't disprove any of these people's prophecies because you can't see that Christ returned in his heavenly temple. She marries a Millerite, James White. That's where she gets Ellen G. White, her last name. She speaks on a tour with the Millerites. So in those days, you had a speaking circuit. I showed you that Judge Rutherford, the main mover of the, an organizer of Jehovah's Witnesses, what does he do? He sets up big speaking hall engagements in New York and invites everybody to come for free. People don't have TV. They don't have radio. They don't have internet. You want to get free entertainment, you go listen to these crazy wild speakers. And so she goes on tour and they bring her out as the prophet of the movement. And she said she has about 2,000 visions from God in her lifetime. 2,000 visions from God. So already today, if somebody comes to you and says these things, your, your radar, your red flag should be going off. Okay, Because we have what? We have the Bible. We have everything God wants us to know right there. And if somebody comes to you and says, I have new visions, new revelations to give, red flags. Right, That's where you pull out the Bible and start teaching them that, the church was founded on the apostles and prophets, and we're not looking for prophets after that. Here's what she said. I want to show you this in her own writing to give you a sense, because here's the deal with Seventh-day Adventists. They're going to argue that a lot of what you've heard is not true. They're going to say, well, that's not true. We don't believe in annihilationism. We don't believe in soul sleep. They're just playing games. They're very deceptive. And we'll look at a verse later that talks about false teachers being deceptive. They're deceptive. They're playing that old game of, well, the Trinity is not in the Bible. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, Chris. Why do you keep talking about it? Well, yeah, but the teaching of the Trinity is in the Bible. That's a, a label put on it later to summarize it in one word. Soul sleep, annihilationism, this ongoing atonement of Christ thing that we're going to look at. Those are in their doctrinal statements. And her strange visions are right here in our early writings to even look at. So she says, the Lord has given me a view of other worlds. Y'all thought that was just modern-day sci-fi. We're going back to the 1800s. Other worlds. Wings were given me. An angel attended me from the city to a place that was bright and glorious. The grass of the place was living green, and the birds were war- they warbled a sweet song. The inhabitants of the place were all of all sizes. They were noble, majestic, and lovely. They bore the express image of Jesus, and their countenances beamed with holy joy, expressive of the freedom and happiness of the place. I asked one of them, why they were so much more lovely than those on the earth. Okay, so she's having this vision. God's taken her away to this place with the angels. And she meets these beings that are so wonderful. And so why, why are they there? Now this plays into their legalistic beliefs. Their reply was, we lived in strict obedience to the commands of God. And have not fallen by disobedience like those on the earth. So what's the teaching there? You want to be in this glorified, wonderful place? You strictly live by the commandments of God. That's called legalism. Nothing about Christ, nothing about faith here. She says, then I saw two trees. One looked much like the tree of life in the city, and the fruit of both looked beautiful. But of one they could not eat. They had power to eat of both, but were forbidden to eat of one. Then my attending angel said to me, none in this place have tasted of the forbidden tree. But if they should eat, they would fall. So it's almost like an ongoing garden temptation that is present. Then I was taken to a world which had seven moons. Then I saw good old Enoch, who had been translated, meaning he had been 
translated in the older term is taken from one place to another. Usually described of, of believers in heaven. She sees Enoch in this place with seven moons. On his right arm, he bore a glorious palm. And on each leaf was written victory. Around his head was a dazzling white wreath and leaves on the wreath. And in the middle of each leaf was written purity. And around the wreath were stones of various colors that shone brighter than the stars, cast a reflection upon the letters and magnified them. On the back part of his head was a bow that confined the wreath. And upon the bow was written holiness. What verse is that? Not even in the book of Enoch, which isn't part of the Bible. That's where she's pulling probably some of this. Above the wreath was a lovely crown that shone brighter than the sun. I asked him if this was the place he was taken to from the earth. He said, it is not. The city is my home and I have come to visit this place, the place of seven moons. He moved about the place as if perfectly at home. I begged of my attending angel to let me remain in that place. I could not bear the thought of coming back to this dark world again. And the angel said, you must go back. And if you are faithful, you with the 144,000 shall have the privilege of visiting all the worlds and in view, viewing the handiwork of God. This is in our own words, early prophecies, early writings. She's got these visions from God, a word from God. And you should listen to her because she's been to the place of seven moons. Here's something else she said, very interesting. Every species of animal which had, had been created were preserved in the ark. So if God created it, it got preserved in the ark. The confused species which God did not create. Does that send up red flags to anybody? What is created that God did not create? Which were the result of amalgamation. Were destroyed by the flood. Well, there's some, some things, animals, humans. There's some amalgamation, monster, basically, amalgamation. They were destroyed by the flood. Since the flood, there has been amalgamation of man and beast, really. As may be seen in the almost endless varieties of species of animals and in certain races of men. Yeah, I think she's talking more of animals and humans coming together and, and producing something. I mean, it's science fiction, really. That's what it is. Everybody who tells you, yeah, my prophet, you know, my prophet knows what they're talking about. Just, I wouldn't suggest you read a lot of it, but just find stuff like this and you think, this is out. I mean, what did God destroy that he didn't create? With the flood. I mean, it's just strange. It's weird. She'll have more to say about animals when it comes to not eating meat. So here's a summary of their bad theology, most of which is traced back to Ellen G. White. We'll get into these in some more detail after we look at more of Ellen G. White. But soul sleep, annihilationism, understanding the gospel is requiring worship on the seventh day. So that's where they get their name. Why are they called Seventh Day Adventists? Adventist is, is a word for the coming of Christ. So their focus is on Christ's return. And they say he's kind of already come back, but not really. And uh, they say also we must worship on Saturday. Because you follow the strict commands. And the commandments say the Sabbath day is the day you should worship. And the Sabbath day you keep holy. And if you break that, well, you're breaking the Ten Commandments. And you're going to hell. They won't come out and say it like that, but that's what Ellen G. White said. And sometimes if you really get a, a really serious, passionate Seventh-day Adventist, they will pretty much say, you worship on Sunday, you're going to hell. Dietary laws, they have some strict laws. Many are vegetarians today. And then the most concerning of all their theology, this second work of atonement in heaven, which all comes from this 1844 prediction. This 1844 prediction fails so what do you do when your prediction of Christ's return fails? You just make up a heretical theology to replace it so you're not wrong. 
And basically God's word would be wrong. They call this the investigative judgment. The investigative judgment. They go to, she goes, Ellen G. White goes to Revelation and the three angels and they make this proclamation in Revelation, but we won't go through all of her bad exegesis, eisegesis, really. They also call this the heavenly sanctuary where Christ went and made atonement again for you in the heavenly sanctuary because his work on the earth wasn't enough. He needed to keep going back and making an ongoing effort of atonement. Does that sound familiar to anything else that you know that's really popular around here? Roman Catholicism, you need to take the body and blood of Christ and re-sacrifice it a billion times a year every time there's a mass. But essentially saying what already happened isn't enough, you need to do it again for each person in the room. So here's where all these come from. Where do they get this stuff? Well, they don't get it from just twisting scriptures, although they can certainly do some of that. People do twist scriptures to come up with bad theology. The problem really is continuing prophecy. They believe that the Bible is the word of God and the continuing prophecy is the word of God. And the, the problem you're going to find if you talk with these folks is, like I said, they will deny, like any liar, just deny that's what they mean. Deny that's what they said. Deny that's their beliefs. And they will say to you, that's not what we believe. Well, their website talks about prophecy. And it says, if you zoom in on that page, on what they believe, it says, throughout history, God used prophets to provide his beloved children with comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction. When they lost their way, he sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him. When they started to despair, he sent prophets to encourage. And when they needed someone to talk to, God listened and replied through his prophets. God's prophets are his messengers appointed to speak his words. Our human nature made it impossible for us to see God face to face. But just because we have to keep our distance does not mean he must remain silent. Adventists believe prophecies are God's way of continuing his conversation with us. And ultimately, it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. The epitome of God's message of love that he would die for us to save our souls. So if you're not reading carefully, you might miss that they're saying that God sent his prophets to talk to God's people. And, and even though this is behind the, the scenes in between the letters here, even though we have the Bible now, we still need this method of continuing communication with God through his prophets. Now, Hebrews 1 says that the Christ came to us and spoke to us differently than the prophets did before him. He has come now. He has revealed what we need to know. We have the scripture. We have the completed Bible. And they would actually say, we agree, but we also have prophecy, mainly Ellen G. White. They don't necessarily have other favorite prophets. She is their, their favorite. And he, this is his continuing conversation with us. So. If you're going to say that Ellen G. White is saying the words of God, then they're putting it on par. They're making it equal with Scripture. Because if it's God's word, you have to do it, right? If God speaks, you have to obey him. Yeah. So if it's in the Bible, we say amen. The issue is somebody else comes and says, I've got something that's not in the Bible. Now you have to obey that as well. What are you going to do? Run. That sounds good. Or you can tell them the truth and then run they don't listen here's here's they'll say well she doesn't claim to be speaking the words of god she does and they treat her her teaching like that it's their the theology of their church 
She says, when I, she's writing this letter back to somebody. When I went to Colorado, I was burdened for you, the group she's writing to, or people that follow her. I was burdened for you that in my weakness, I wrote many pages to be read at your camp meeting. Weak and trembling, I rose at three o'clock in the morning to write to you. God was speaking through clay. She's talking about herself here. You might say that this communication was only a letter. Yes, it was a letter, but prompted by the Spirit of God to bring before your minds things that had been shown me. And these letters which I write and the testimonies I bear, I'm presenting to you that which the Lord has presented to me. So she's saying, I'm just telling you what God has told me. I do not write one article in the paper expressing merely my own ideas. They are what God has opened before me in vision. The precious rays of light shining from the throne. So what she's saying is, these aren't just my words. These are God's words. She goes on. What voice will you acknowledge as the voice of God? She's basically, that's just her way of saying, listen to what I say, because it's the voice of God. What power has the Lord in reserve to correct your errors and show you your course as it is? So who are you going to listen to? And she's saying, you better listen to me because I'm speaking for God. What power to work in the church? We, we need Ellen G. White to see what the church should do. If you refuse to believe until every shadow of uncertainty and every possibility of doubt is removed, you will never believe. Just she's saying, I'm the prophet of God. You must listen to me and believe what I say. And this, by this point, it's, it's called the Seventh-day Adventist movement. And she is the main teacher. Setting aside the whole, women are not to lead and teach men in the church. Let's look at some of their different doctrines. By the way, is there any body today, any books today that are out there? That where a woman is claiming to speak for God? What is it? Yeah, the whole Jesus Calling multi-million, multi-billion dollars now. Book sales. The Jesus Calling. And if you, if you challenge people on it, they'll say, well, she's just writing her own thoughts. Well, in the preface, and it's been changed over the years. So I don't know if the most recent versions say this. But in the preface, she says, I sat down. I listened to what Jesus was telling me. And I wrote it out in the book. And it's, it's about, you know, how, how to live the Christian life. Not, not necessarily commands like we would see in Scripture, but just a general view coming from her on how to live the Christian life. So if it's the words of Jesus on how to live the Christian life, should you listen to it? If it truly was the words of Jesus, yes, but we know it's not. And we could go back and talk about prophets and all that, but what she's doing is relying on someone. Who wrote that book? What's her name? Sarah Young, yeah, Sarah Young. We used to get it all the time. Our kids would get it for Christmas as a gift from family members. <laughs> Sorry, eight-year-old, this gift is going in the trash. We would sell it back to some of these used bookstores, but I'm not sure that's a good idea either. And they already have a billion in there anyway. So she's going back to the 1800s when there was another man who, I think it was called God Calling. So she didn't even change the name of the book much, right? And this person, what they practice is automatic writing. And so it's sort of like close your eyes, listen to God, and you, you write with your eyes closed what God is saying on paper. And then you open your eyes and wow, there it is. God has said all these things. I'm going to publish it in a book. So it's not exactly Seventh-day Adventism, but you can see the problem with this ongoing belief in prophecy. And in today's world, you talk to people about this and it is completely one of openness. 
Of course, there's prophecy in the world. There were prophecy and there's prophecy in the Bible. Therefore, there's prophecy today. Does that logic really work? There's a lot of things that happen in the Bible. There's a lot of things that happen in the Bible. Does that happen today? Does the worldwide flood happen today? No. Well, God said, you know, the flood's not going to happen again. Okay. Does, does the sea part where you can walk through it with millions of people? Well, no, not that kind of miracle. What are we talking about? What kind of miracle then? Well, you know, you laid down and this guy, he did something and your leg length changed. You could do that going to a chiropractor. You know, that's not really a miracle. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's the idea that we're not supposed to tell people their theology is wrong. It's not about what we think. It's about what Scripture says. And if, you, if some of us who've been around more than 30 or 40 years remember a time and a day and an age where everybody just didn't listen to every prophecy and every charismatic belief or whatever you want to call it that came out. It was rare. It was rare to, to find and hear those things. Now, it's flipped. Now you can't question it or you're the bad guy. Used to, if you believed in ongoing prophecy and prophets, then you were viewed as very strange and maybe even a cult. Now, totally flipped. Now we're the cult because we don't believe in prophecy, according to them. Why is that? Why has it changed? We don't have time to go into that. I think I did a bit in my church history class, but maybe in the future here. Someday I want to do a, a, maybe a summer class just on charismatic theology. Look at what the Bible says about prophecy, healing, and tongues. Okay, so soul sleep. Fundamental beliefs. This is their doctrinal statement. They have, I don't know, 30, 40 something fundamental beliefs. It's like their basic doctrinal statement. Very basic. And here's what they say. Until that day, death is an unconscious state for all people. That day is the return of Christ. So soul sleep, and we saw this with Jehovah's Witnesses, soul sleep is the idea that when you die, your soul does not go to heaven. In their view, it just kind of goes into the state of unconsciousness. Not with God in heaven. That's a conscious state. Your soul is conscious of what's going on in heaven. Like in Revelation, you hear the, the people under the altar saying, How long, O Lord? Like Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. But they say, no, your body's in the ground and the soul can't separate from the body. And so your soul's just sort of in a, in a sleep state. And when Christ comes back and gives you your new body, then he does something with your soul to make it not asleep anymore. The Job's Witnesses, as I said last week, their version of soul sleep is that when your body dies, your soul disappears. And then when you get the resurrected body, he recreates your soul. And so here's what the Bible says. For believers, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's, that's a clear teaching. There's two verses right there. If you talk to Seventh-day Adventists, you'll want to recall these. Let's just look at one, Philippians 1.23. Philippians 1.23 tells us about this. We, we don't have to sit there and debate. Well, I think, and you think, and I think. No, the Word of God says. That's what you say. <laughs> the Bible says. God's word says, by the, through the apostle Paul, a man who actually had the gift of prophecy as an apostle, he says, I'm hard pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. He's about to die, he thinks. He's in jail. And he says, that is very much better. Now, if soul sleep is real, why would he say that? I mean, this life is better if you're just going to go unconscious and sort of be in this weird place where you can't even think and know what's going on. He says, I want to go and be with Christ. 
So for unbelievers, death means everlasting punishment in hell too. Because they say it's not just believers who go on to soul sleep, but it's the unbelievers as well. Well, Jesus talks about hell when he gives the story or some call it a, a parable. There's debate about if it's actually happening or a parable he made up to teach on it. Regardless, he's teaching on hell though. And Luke 16, 22, now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. So the rich man who never wanted to help this poor man at his doorstep and pretty much kicked him every time he went out the door. It doesn't say that, but that's essentially summing it up. He never gave him anything to help him. And he just sought to wish more and more harm upon this man. This rich man goes to hell, Hades, a place of fire for the soul until the body is resurrected. And then he gets the eternal lake of fire, which is even worse. And the poor man goes to Abraham's bosom, what we just call heaven, a place where the soul is with Christ, with God, until the resurrected body. And then soul and body are reunited. More on that in today's sermon. And so Jesus is clear. Paul is clear. The Bible is clear. There's no such thing as soul sleep. You won't find it anywhere. Again, it's, it's this woman, Ellen G. White, just going to, I think, Revelation and kind of taking one verse and making a whole theology out of it. Annihilationism. So soul sleep and annihilation, annihilationism are two that they'll say, well, we don't believe that. Where's that in our doctrinal statement? Because there's their doctrinal statement, right? Until that day, death is an unconscious state for all people. And they play that old word game on you. Where's soul sleep in that? Well, soul sleep is defined as the unconscious state of a person after they die. The unconscious state of their soul after they die. Call it what you want. It's not biblical. It is false. Same thing with this. Where's annihilationism in our doctrinal statement? You can't find it. And you go spend like seven weeks trying to look for it. And turns out the word's not there because it's a newer word that we use to describe this belief. Here it is, number 28 in their belief statements. The unrighteous dead will then be resurrected. They're talking about the, the coming resurrection. Even unbelievers, the Bible does teach, will be resurrected. And with Satan and his angels will surround the city. But fire from God will consume them and cleanse the earth. The universe will thus be freed of sin and sinners forever. So if you're not careful here, you might pass over this. But what, what they're saying is the unbelievers and Satan and the angels aren't punished forever. They're, they're gone at this point. The, the final battle occurs at the end of Revelation 20. And then they're, they're zapped out. They're gone. They're annihilated is, is the term we use today. Annihilated. They're out of existence. They get hit with the particle beam and it makes them go to nothing. Which brings up a lot of questions. Why did God resurrect them? Why did they get a new body just for one day of battle? I mean, there's a lot of questions. But this is their belief. And now a lot of them will say they believe in annihilationism. Even some evangelicals now believe in annihilationism. I talked last week about a guy who tried to join our church that believed this. And we said, no, in our basic statement of faith, every member must affirm that there's eternal life for the believer and eternal punishment for the unbeliever. Because it's very clear in Scripture. It's very clear in the New Testament. Matthew 25, 6. These are the go-to verses for disproving annihilationism. I always try to put extra syllables in there. Jesus was clear. And 
This is a, a tough one. The universalists often will talk like this too. They'll use the same idea. But theirs is more of God is compassionate. He would never punish anybody. And so the unbeliever dies and they're just, they, they're gone. They don't get punished. Or maybe they suffer for a little while. Like John Stott, who was a good preacher and had some good theology, but he believed that after a certain amount of time, the unbeliever would just be annihilated, zapped. Here's what Jesus says. Both of these passages make it parallel with eternal life. So, Calvin, can you make those stay on? Turn the fan on the... Thank you. Uh, Matthew twenty-five forty-six. And these will go away into eternal punishment. So that's the unbelievers. But the righteous into eternal life. So what is he doing there? He's saying a parallel statement. There's a group that go to eternal punishment. And there's a group that go to eternal life. There's two groups. But what's the same word used in both parts of this statement? Eternal. It's the same Greek word. It's the same English word. And so people will go to a great extent sometimes to, to prove that eternal doesn't mean eternal. And then what you do is you just say, well, what about eternal life? Is that eternal? Well, that's eternal, but the other eternal is not eternal. Is God eternal? Because it says in the Bible, God's eternal. Oh, well, he's eternal. And believers live eternally, but not unbelievers. Well, the same word is used there. Eternal means what? Forever. Well, sometimes this Greek word can mean an age. Okay, well, do believers just get an age of life and then they go out of existence? See, it's parallel. If Whatever you say about eternal punishment with the eternal part, you have to also apply it to eternal life because the same word is used. So you, you can't unbalance the seesaw and do what you want with one end because then the other end gets thrown off. The same as in Daniel 12 too. And I mentioned this recently in a sermon. In, in Daniel 12 too, we have a very similar thing. It's just more of the Old Testament language and not the, the New Testament. But again, we can look at the Hebrew words for Daniel 12 too, And the same Hebrew word is used. The same idea here. Daniel 12, 2, turning too many pages too fast here. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. So they would go here and say, see, soul sleep. No, sleep is, is a, a euphemism in the Bible describing death because it gives the person hope. The body, it's, it's really just like the body is asleep because you can get a new body someday. And so that's why you see the New Testament and the Old Testament talking about sleep or the body. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These two everlasting life. So the saints, the holy ones, are going to be, come, they're going to come up out of the ground. They're going to get a new body. We call that the resurrection. And they're going to everlasting life. What does everlasting mean? Eternity, eternal, forever. It lasts forever. That's what the English word everlasting means. But the others to reproach in what? Everlasting contempt. Contempt is condemnation. So if you say to me, everlasting contempt isn't really everlasting, well, then what are you going to do with the everlasting life? Whatever you do with that Hebrew word, olam, which means eternity, everlasting, you have to do it to both parts of the sentence, the life part and the contempt part. Why not just take it like it's meant to be taken forever? You'll have forever life if you're a holy one meaning you trust in the Messiah, and you'll have forever punishment if you don't. So remember those two verses, they're parallel. 
great verses for anyone who talks about annihilationism. And it is becoming more popular amongst our circles, amongst evangelicals, who sound very orthodox in their theology, except on that point. And they even have new words for it called conditional immortality. That your immortality is conditioned upon your faith. And if you don't have faith, then you don't get to live forever, even as an unbeliever in hell. Here's another belief. This is legalism. And these next couple are, are legalism. You must obey these laws or you're not saved. And these laws aren't found in Scripture. In fact, they go against the New Testament. So understanding the gospel, they say, requires that you worship on the seventh day. And you say, that's fine. We're here on Sunday. That's not the seventh day in the Jew- Jewish Hebrew calendar. What's the seventh day? The Sabbath. What, what day in English is that? Saturday. Sabbath day turns into our English Saturday. And so they're saying, as Christians, we must worship on Saturday. In fact, a lot of uh, church plants start by renting out Seventh-day Adventist churches. I'm not sure my thoughts necessarily on that. I'm, I wouldn't be comfortable with that personally. But I know churches do start church plants because nobody's there on Sunday, so they can rent it. I, I, I don't know that I could do that. So here's fundamental belief number 20. Because they'll say, well, it's not required. Fundamental belief, belief number 20. The fourth commandment of God's unchangeable laws requires the observance of his seventh-day Sabbath as a day of rest, worship, and ministry in harmony with the teaching and practice of Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. So they're saying this was required in the Old Testament. It's required in the New Testament as well. And so there's this big debate that comes up in Seventh-day Adventism. Oh, well, do we require it? Is it necessary or just a good idea? And uh, the Seventh-day Adventists sometimes will get upset about these debates, and they'll go out and write a whole book on it to try to clarify it. And so here's what one author said, writing a book called Answers to Objections Against the Seventh-day Adventists. We conclude that although Sabbath-keeping cannot secure us admission into heaven, Sabbath-breaking will certainly prevent our entrance. What kind of double statement is that, right? Well, y'all require, don't you, don't you Seventh-day Adventists require us to worship on Saturday or we're going to hell? No, no, it's not a requirement. But if you don't do it, you're going to hell for sure. Aren't you required? That's like telling my kids, Am I required to come in and wash up before dinner? Oh, no, not at all. But if you don't do it, you're going to be punished severely. Well, then I'm required to do it. Well, not necessarily. You know, it's just word games, word games. You don't have to do it, but if you don't do it, you're going to hell. So you pretty much have to do it, right? Or you're going to go to hell. And the reason the guy wrote the book, by the way, is, is as I said, people were debating that. Well, it's nice. It's a good idea. But do we have to? Do we tell people that? Yeah, they would say, yeah, you do. So how do we answer the legalism? Romans 14, 5. I mean, the New Testament is so clear. The book of Romans just destroys this argument, but we don't have time to review the theology of the Mosaic law versus the New Covenant law brought out in Romans. But Romans 14.5, let's just go to Christian liberty. Christian liberty, Romans 14.5. Paul says, one person judges one day above another. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and, and maybe some Jews prop up Saturday too highly. One person judges one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So if you want to take Saturday off, now it's like an American tradition, right? You can take Saturday and Sunday off. And, and Sunday, you know, you, you go do sports. And on Wednesday night, you do sports. So there's really no time for church. We, we saw a school bus headed full of kids this morning on the way to church. They were going somewhere out of San Antonio. Oh, school was out. I don't even know where they're going on Sunday morning. So let's also look at Colossians 2.17. Here he talks specifically about the Sabbath. 
because there's Jews who are in these Christian churches early on and they're saying, well, Sunday's great. I mean, that's when Christians worship, but shouldn't we also consider the Sabbath? I mean, are you really a Christian if you don't worship on Saturday? And Paul says, he says in verse 16, therefore, no one is to judge you in food or drink and in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So we're not to worship on the Sabbath. There's no commandment in the New Testament to do that. Now there is a practice and a commandment to worship regularly every week. And when do Christians do that? On the first day of the week, not the seventh. On a Sunday called the Lord's Day, the day that people would gather. And I think there, there, if you take both the command to gather together regularly and not forsake it, and what the New Testament church did, that's Sunday, the Lord's Day, and we should gather at the minimum once a week on the Lord's Day. But that's not the same thing as saying, well, the fourth commandment applies to New Testament believers. Dietary laws. Here's another legalism. So they'll say, we don't require vegetarianism. Fundamental belief number 22, along with adequate exercise and rest, we are to adopt the most healthful diet possible and abstain from the unclean foods identified in the scriptures. So again, what they're saying is you've got to obey all the commandments in the Old Testament. It's a legalistic form of Christianity, Christian cult. You have to do what the Old Testament says and all those things, especially the diet laws. And so they say, see, you can eat meat. Well, the majority of them, or a large percentage, are vegans, are vegetarians. Here's what Ellen G. White said. The animals manifest sympathy and tenderness toward their companions in suffering. Many animals show an affection for those who have charge of them, far superior to the affection shown by some of the human race. They form attachments for man, which are not broken without great suffering to them. What man with a human heart who's ever cared for domestic animals could look into their eyes so full of confidence and affection and willingly give them over to the butcher's knife? How could he devour their flesh as a sweet morsel? I mean, Carl, how can you look at those animals that you raised all those years when you were young and then take them to the butcher and then eat a piece of steak the next week? And so that's what they're saying. And, and this kind of thinking is catching on even with unbelievers today. But, but many Christians too, not just for food laws, but they'll say, you know, my, my favorite animal, my favorite pet is going to be resurrected with me and live with me in heaven. Why? Because they showed more compassion. Some people, and I've seen this multiple places in writing online, that animal cared more for me than my own children. So why wouldn't God raise them up and my children, whatever, they never talked to me. How do we answer the legalism of these diet laws? Genesis 9, 3, I'll just summarize. That's where Noah gets off the ark and God says, now you can eat of all the animals, but only eat the clean animals. You can eat from the animals. You can eat meat. Before that, the implication is you couldn't eat meat. You ate from the plants. You ate from what you grew in the ground. In the garden, they, they ate from the fruit of the trees that God provided. Then Jesus has a, a word to say about this. Mark 719. By the way, this legalism here with the diet, that's going to come up again when we look at Hebrew roots, because Hebrew roots is even more of the Old Testament law brought into Christianity. And they're big on dress codes and diet laws and Hebrew roots. Mark 719. So Jesus is talking about here. They're, they're upset. Jesus isn't following what they think needs to be done. His disciples are talking to him. And, and they have these questions. 
And, and Jesus is explaining, are you lacking understanding in this way? Do you not understand? Whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him. So when you take something in, then that's not what defiles you. It's not the food that you eat. Because it does not go into his heart, but his stomach. It goes to the sewer. So food is just for our body to have energy and, and, and survive. But look what Mark puts in parentheses. Thus he declared all foods clean. All foods. Well, you know, they'll say, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist, he didn't declare all foods clean because he went on eating according to the Mosaic law, and so did the disciples for a while. Yeah, but Mark is saying by this statement, Jesus is already pointing forward to a time very soon when the Gentiles come into the church, they're not required to eat according to Old Testament food laws. And even the Jews who've converted aren't either because he's talking to Jewish disciples at this point. Just in case we weren't clear, though, God clears it all up for us in Acts 10. And man, the, the legalists of all stripes do not like this teaching. Acts 10, that's when the sheet comes down with Peter. Because Peter's staying at a Gentile house. And uh, what's he going to do? Is he going to eat their food or not? Because that's, that's how you take care of people. That's how you meet people, greet people, and have conversation with them over a meal. And so he's kind of stressing about this. Acts 10, 9. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and was desiring to eat. And while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the sky. So all of them. The things the Old Testament said under the Mosaic law, you should not eat. Because God was trying to separate them from the Gentiles and show the Gentiles these people are different. But now, under the new covenant, we can eat these things. And so continuing on here, And a voice came to him, Rise up, Peter, slaughter and eat. And he said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything defiled and unclean. So he pushes back a little bit against the vision of God here and the voice of God. And again, the voice came to him and said a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer considered defiled. And this happened three times. He needed it three times to get the point across to his stubbornness. And immediately the object was taken up into heaven. So that's pretty clear. You can eat all these things. I know Joe Osteen says you can't eat shrimp and you can't eat pig. But the Bible says you can. And I had some pork last night. And it was good. And I love bacon. It's one of our favorite foods. You can eat it, and it's, you, you can say, well, it's not as healthy, and, and there's fine. There's lots of arguments you can make about you know, eating pork fat versus beef fat and digestive issues and whatever. That's separate, though, than this argument, is it sinful or not? 1 Timothy 4.4, God has declared all things clean as long as we give thanks for them and pray for them. It's what's in our heart that matters, in other words. Again, Colossians 2, you have an idea here that the Colossians are struggling with legalism. There's a lot of legalists coming in saying you must do these things because I believe, I believe it's the right thing to do, they say. And they try to point back to the Old Testament. Colossians 2.20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, you've already been converted. All that stuff of legalism is in the past. Why? As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to these decrees, these laws that people bring in? What laws? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Don't touch those defiled things. Don't touch people that are sinful. Don't taste the food that they serve you, those Gentiles. 
And he says, these things deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which are matters having to be sure a word of wisdom and self-made religion. So this is self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So what they were saying is, if you truly want to be holy and kill your sin, you change your diet. You go on the Daniel diet. We're going to do that for one month in January, and the rest of the year you'll be more holy because of that. Anybody heard of the Daniel diet? No meat. Only vegetables like Daniel. We'll get to that when we get to Daniel. But Let's move on to the next one. This is the big one. A second work of atonement in heaven. Anytime you hear second work of atonement, you just, you just reject that doctrine immediately. It's the most heretical of their beliefs. It says that Christ is currently performing a final work of atonement. So it's ongoing. He's still doing it. And an investigative judgment in heaven as the church's great high priest. So they're, what they're trying to do is combine the failed attempt in 1844 with this coming of Christ that said happened invisibly in heaven. What's he doing going into the temple in heaven? Well, he's making a, a second atonement. It continues up through today. And it's also to investigate whether you're really following the law, these food laws and these seven, seventh-day worship laws and all the laws they come up with. In 1844... Christ moved from the heavenly holy place into the holy of holies to complete that atoning work. So they say he's like the high priest. Up until 1844, he was just in the, the holy place. He was just in the temple grounds, right? The, the place that the men can go, the, the place the men could go and worship. But now he's gone into the holy of holies. Not just where the priests could go, but only the high priest could go in the holy of holies once a year. They say that's where Jesus went into in 1844. This is again going back to Ellen G. White. She says, Today he is making an atonement for us before the Father. This was in 1895. She also said, Now, while our great high priest is making the atonement for us, we should seek to become perfect in Christ. So you work as hard as you can to obey, and he's investigating that as he's sitting there in the Holy of Holies, making another atonement for you. And again, they'll say, We don't believe anything about this second atonement. I'll show you, it's in their doctrinal statement. They put enough confusing language in there to kind of trip you up. Here's also Ellen G. White. Attended by heavenly angels, our great high priest enters the Holy of Holies and there appears in the presence of God to engage in the last acts of his ministration in behalf of man, to perform the work of investigative judgment and to make an atonement for all who are shown to be entitled to its benefits. So he's still making an atonement. He's still sacrificing himself in some way in heaven for you doesn't match up to scripture at all. And this one really calls into question Christ's atonement that he actually did on the cross. Wasn't sufficient. Yeah. So, okay, well, they, that's Ellen G. White, even though that's their main teacher. That's just Ellen G. White. That's in the past. We believe different today. Well, some guys got mad about that in the Seventh-day Adventist movement, and they said, we're going to write a book on this. Speaking of 1844, Sister White stated, so when Christ entered the Holy of Holies to perform the closing work of the atonement, he ceased his ministration in the first apartment. The first part that he came to do on the earth stopped because he went to heaven. And now he's doing the second part. But there's a first, there's a second here. And so they're trying to make the case, look, this has always been our belief system. Why are you Seventh-day Adventists trying to deny this to other people? This is two brothers who wrote this. It can be seen perfectly well, they say, from this statement, that Sister White does not close the atonement at the cross. She is referring, of course, to Christ's entry into the Holy of Holies in 1844 to complete the work of the investigative judgment and to make atonement for the sins of his people. As we have seen, the book questions on doctrine, 
is a most unsafe guide. So this is another book that, that came out. They're writing against it. It's an unsafe guide for Adventist doctrine. Don't follow that. They're telling their Adventists. For it was written in order to please a group of evangelicals who had no faith in the full doctrine of the atonement. So they're saying, look, this other book that's out there that was written to, to try to say Seventh-day Adventists don't believe in this doctrine. They say, don't listen to that. That was just written to please the evangelicals who want to bring us in under their tent. Because there's a lot of people who believe the truth about the atonement, but they want to bring the Seventh-day Adventists along and say, these are my brothers in Christ. Just like they do the Mormons. There are plenty of evangelicals who say, the Mormons are our brothers in Christ. Including the guy who made that new show, The Chosen. He says, very clearly in a, in a recording on YouTube, he says, I brought them on. I wanted them to help us with this. They are brothers in Christ. We have minor differences, but they are brothers in Christ. All right, y'all getting me off track here. Fundamental Belief 24. Here's, it is, here's, here's their doctrinal statement. I'll just read the yellow. In 1844, at the end of the prophetic period of 2300 days, he entered the second and last phase of his atoning ministry. It is the work of investigative judgment. So there it is. And I have some other language around that I don't have time to read, but it's, it's a, this is their 28, 28 beliefs. They have other language that kind of makes it sound like, well, that was all we needed was the first work, but then they have the second work. How do we answer that? Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. John 19, 30 is when Jesus says it is finished. So was it finished when he said that or not? Yeah. Right. So what was Jesus doing, by the way, until 1844? What was he even doing in heaven if he just then goes in there according to their beliefs? All these other scriptures, write them down, but I'm going to finish today with Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. This is very heretical, the worst of their doctrines. And when you say these people are Christians just like us, well, they've denied the atonement by adding a second atonement. So Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, that's Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. How many? One, one sacrifice. He sat down at the right hand of God. He didn't get up and go do something else to work. He sat down at the right hand of God. He's waiting from that time until his enemies are put under, put as a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, how many offerings? One. One offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's no investigative judgment to look at. There's no second work. It's one sacrifice, one offering. He sat down. He's right there at the right hand of God until he comes back. That's it. There's no other options. So let's pray for these people and those we interact with who believe this. Lord, we pray for the Seventh-day Adventists that we come into contact with, all of them out there, Lord, that they would come to a true saving faith. They would trust in the once-for-all finished sacrifice of Christ on the cross, that they would trust in him through faith alone and Christ alone, put aside this legalism and heretical doctrine. I pray, Lord, that in our interactions with people who believe this, that we could help to show them the truth of Scripture, that we would take them there and help them to be focused on what God's Word says, what God says on His own work of salvation. That's what matters. Help us to be gentle and loving when we do that. In the name of our Savior, amen.